So, we're going to be in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel this morning, 2 Samuel, it happens, I tried. So David is the king of Israel. Last week we saw King David and the God, God Almighty promised David that through him, a forever king would come and bring a forever kingdom. That through David's lineage, someday someone would come and bring forever peace and a forever home for God's people. Now David, the king, is known for two great stories. In his life, there's two stories that even unchurched people know. What's the most popular David story in the whole world? David and Goliath. I mean, every sportscaster at some point in their journey of sportscasting is going to say about a little team and a big team, it's like David and Goliath. It's a phrase that's in the popular vernacular of our nation. David and Goliath. It's a story of bravery, a story of overcoming all odds, a story of God's faithfulness. David's known for that. David is also known for another story. What is the other story David is known for? Bathsheba. It's a name that's famous. David and Bathsheba. This man who is a man for God's own heart is known for great faith and he's known for great failure. That's one reason I love the Bible so much is the Bible doesn't paint this flawless picture of people. It never says, here is a hero who never messed up, made no mistakes, and was awesome from the day he was born to the day they died. Every one of us who's loved anybody in this world, if we've ever buried anybody, buried an aunt or a grandma, no matter how good they were to us, no matter how much they loved us, we knew that though they're good in all these ways, every person we ever loved also had things that weren't so good. We don't say at the funeral because that would be rude. But that they're there, and we all know what they are. David, what's crazy is, David's the king, and David hired the historian to write this story down, and he let them keep all this in the story. Tell them what I did. Tell them what I did. It's part of the story of our nation. Let it play. I mean, nowadays, if, you're, if you have power, you erase your mistakes, you know? You never say sorry. So what did David do? What is the story of David and Bathsheba? We begin in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It starts like this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So what's going on? It's the springtime. In the ancient world, you would pause warfare in the winter because it was just too cold. It was just too cold. And if people were smart as the ancient Israelites, they would know this. Did you know that both Napoleon and Hitler, they tried to both invade Russia? You know what killed both of those armies? The winter! 
Because tanks don't run in winter. Who knew? Israel's like, you know, it's, it's winter. Let's just go home and chill and wait. So every army would go home, chill out in the winter, and when the spring came, the armies would come back out, and the war would start anew. Well, David sends his general, sends the army, but David stays home, and he's just chilling. And it says this. It happened late one afternoon. David arose from his couch, was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. He's walking. His, his house is easily the biggest house in Israel. It's probably one of the only houses in the area that's more than one floor. So he's high up. And everyone else's houses are below him. And he's walking as a woman taking a bath. And he sees it. At this moment, he has not sinned. Sometimes things happen. If I'm at a gas station, someone opens the door on me in the bathroom, that's a mistake. Oh, man, sorry, dude. No harm, no fault. That moment, nothing bad has happened. If the dude goes like, hey, well, now we have trouble. <laughs> that extra step is where the danger lies. Now, it says of this woman, she's very beautiful. In the Bible, only three women are given this word of beauty. Only three. Bathsheba. Anyone know who else in the Bible is called beautiful like this? Anyone have any ideas? Close, yo. He swung and missed at Rachel. And think of a story about a lady whose beauty was renowned by the nations. Esther is called very beautiful. And so is Rebecca. Rebecca, Bathsheba, and Esther are called very beautiful. And David sees her. And instead of turning away, instead of saying, oh, man, I've made a mistake. I should have seen that. It's not mine to look at. He sees it, and he stares, and he enjoys it. It says, David sent and inquired about the woman. He asked his guards, who lives on like 42 Palace Lane, east of, the, east of the palace. Who lives over there? They find us Bathsheba, son of Uriah the Hittite, or daughter of Uriah the Hittite. Okay, okay, that's who she is. And David sent, quite out the woman, once it is not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with so I want to start our talk today. Sin is a delight to the eyes. This is the language of Eve. When Eve in the garden saw the fruit, and she knew God had said, do not eat of the fruit of the, knowledge of tr of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it says that she's tempted, and she looks at the fruit, and it is a desire to the eyes. We learn later on in the Bible that there's three temptations. One of them is the lust of the eyes. Sin is desirous to the eyes. Sin looks good. If sin was ugly, we wouldn't be tempted to do it. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season. Sin can feel good for a moment. Listen, 
Getting high feels good in the moment. And getting drunk can take the edge off for a moment. It can do all those things. But the drunk goes away. And the hangover's in the morning. Or you know what? Maybe the hangover is in 10 years when you finally stop drinking. Sin is attractive. It's why every beer commercial that's ever on TV is at the beach or in the mountains. And the people in the beer commercial are beautiful people, right? They're all like 20 years old, young, all like fit in like long hair. Guys are all six-packed out. There's no 40-year-old overweight unemployed, back of the trailer park, like, my life sucks, like, not, the guy from Simpsons ain't on the commercial, what's that guy's name, the guy at Moe's Tavern, I don't know what his name is, but, who, what's his name, someone know, not Homer, the Homer's buddy, anyway, they don't show you, they don't show you sitting in, the, sitting in jail after a DUI, they don't show you a kid hiding under their bed, afraid of their drunken, abusive father. They don't show you that part. They show you young people laughing. Look how attractive this lifestyle is, and it makes you want it. Sin is desirous to the eyes. I want to look at it. I want to be, I'm drawn to it. I'm tempted towards it. And maybe no other sin is more tempting to the eyes than sexual sin. And men and women both are plagued by this. I always heard said, you know, men are visual, women are not. Then someone explained to me why Magic Mike made so much money at the theater. <laughs> women can stare too. Oh, Channing Tatum. We can all do it. We can. Men and women can stare and fantasize and desire Recently in our culture, in the last three, four years, there's been a movement called the Me Too movement. And the Me Too movement is a reaction. It's a course correction. For a long time, women would speak about abuse and would be silenced or not believed. So the Me Too movement came up and was a course correction saying, we should probably listen to women when they say they're being abused. I've had women in my own family tell me that when they were little girls, they told their moms or their grandmas or their aunts they had gotten abused, and they were told, shh, just, just don't tell anybody and deal with it. That's how it was for a lot of women for a long, for a lot of places. Not believed, no power, and now the culture swung saying, believe women. Now, all of, I know, I have a friend of mine who's a professor in a university, very vocal about the Me Too movement, this man is. Hashtag believe women. Speaks against rape culture. And the same professor who says that rape culture is a bad thing in colleges will also in the same breath say that pornography is healthy and natural for young men. And I'm like, what do you think taught these men to disrespect women so freely? What do you think birthed in their minds the thought that a woman is an object and not a human soul? That thing you're saying is okay is killing 
a generation. It's killing us. I was at the Moody Bible Institute the first year it got internet in every dorm room. The first year. I was a freshman, and that year everyone got a little a plug in for their computer. We all had internet. And they told us if you go to bad websites, if you go to bad websites, we will turn off the internet to your room. Now, I'm at a college for all future pastors. My school didn't train teachers or nurses. My college was only preachers and missionaries. In the first three months that we all had internet, they had shut down half of the men's internet connections. Half of those men, half of those future church leaders, Christian spiritual leaders, were on the computers staring at things they should not have been looking at. And our culture says it's okay. Our culture says it's totally cool. It is not. It breaks things deep down in our soul. It hurts us in places we can't imagine. I had a friend of mine, a good and godly man. Well, I thought he was. Well, maybe he was for a time. Had a wife, had children. Loved to resource and equip Christians across the globe. Sacrificially gave to God's work in the world. And one night didn't come home. No one knew where he was. It turns out this man drove to a meeting spot to meet a young girl. To have an affair with her. An underage girl he met online. And it was an FBI sting. And his wife got a call. Your husband is going to prison. She talked to him. Because no one saw it coming. He was a deacon at his church. He was a leader trusted. No one saw it coming. And he told the story. And his story, it started the same way many of these stories start. It started looking at, I looked at this, then this. And when this became not arousing, I had to go deeper. And I had to like look at crazier stuff and crazier stuff. Before I knew it, I was trying to meet a young girl, and now I'm in prison, and I've destroyed everything God gave me. Sin is desirous to the eyes, but we have to protect our eyes. If you're in here and you battle with pornography, it's not just a thing. Every computer I own is locked down. If I go somewhere bad, it alerts my accountability partner that fast. My phone is locked down because I, the, the cell phones, that's the, that's the whole world in your pocket. When I was a kid, you had to go to a store and everyone knew you were a pervert. Nowadays, it's right there private and no one knows nothing. The whole world in your pocket. I lock it down because I don't want to lose everything God gave me to a fleeting moment of pleasure. David saw and he looked and the living led him to terrible places. To the fathers and mothers in the room, if you have children, you got to protect those babies and those kids. My daughter came home from school. She said, 
She's going to sixth grade next year, middle school. <laughs> Came home, Dad, the teacher told me I can have a cell phone. And I'm like, daughter whom I love, the teacher ain't your daddy. <laughs> I don't care if everyone, if it's a cell phone, we're not them. Don't let peer pressure make you compromise your values just because all of their parents don't give a rip. You protect your kids. Listen, I told my daughter, not yet, but when you do get a phone, just so you know, that phone is charged at the family charging port in my room. That phone is not with you in your room. There'll never be a cell phone in my kids' room after dark or a computer in their room. You put a computer in your son's room, you're, you're giving him to the devil. When he closed the door, it's like, I wonder what's going to happen. And I'm surprised when he's looking at crazy insanity. I gave him the keys. Here's fast internet. Here's a computer. Close the door. Enjoy your weekend. We got to protect ours. We protect ourselves and protect our children. And I don't care if the kids get mad. At, my kids get mad at me. When my friends have a TV in their room and my friends have a computer in their room, I don't give a rip. I love my kids, and I don't want to see my son or my daughter eaten by that stuff that wounded so many of us. We weren't protected. And a lot of us have to battle that demon every day because it got in early. David looked, and his looking led him to a horrible place where he took a woman from her house, took her by force, that all started with the looking. It just led him further and further into a darkness. Sin is desirous to the eyes. And sin, when it grows up, brings forth death. Sin, is, sin never stays in its corner. I had a buddy, I had a guy I knew. And he illegally bought a wolf cub. Not a hybrid, a straight-up wolf cub. I don't think he owned those, but he did. And at first, a wolf cub's beautiful. They're really pretty. Like, maybe prettier than puppies. Wolf cubs, maybe because they're so exotic, they're just beautiful animals. But a wolf isn't a dog, in case you don't know this. A wolf is a dog before, like, generations of breeding. That thing... It's called the wild. Its instinct is to bring down elk and drink their blood as it's dying in the snow. That's a wolf, okay? So the wolf begins to grow. And the thing has, a, like, other dogs would walk by the house, and dogs would go crazy, and that wolf would come in the window. Because they, they, they knew that's not a dog, it's something else. Now imagine if you will, imagine if you will, you bring home a wolf pup, and you love it. You name it. You give it a cute little name. Oh, Enrique, I love you, wolf pup. When do you come home from work and your wolf pup, pup ate your cat? Oh, my cat's dead. Oh, well, you know what happens. You just learn. I still love you, wolf pup. Go home. One day come home. Ate your dog. Oh, shoot. This, pup getting, this wolf's getting bigger. Killed my dog. Well, you know, it happens. I still love you, Fluffy. Enrique, you're my dog. You're my wolf. Come back, you know, next, you come back a few days later, it eats your kid. 
And you're like, man, I love that kid with this wolf pup. I mean, it's so pretty. That is sin. As it grows, it's going to eat more and more of your life. You cannot hide it. It's going to get out of its hiding spot. David sins. He lays with, lays with Bathsheba, and guess what? She calls him. She sends word, David, I'm pregnant. He's like, oh, shoot. I'm in trouble. Because the law says if she had an affair, she deserves to be killed to cheat on her husband. That's, that's old school, Old Testament stuff. David's like, what do I do? What do I do? He decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring her husband back from the front. Verse 6, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. Uriah came to him. David asked him how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, how the war was going. He does some small talk. How's the war? How you doing? How's life, man? Then David said to Uriah, listen, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. There's a spy following Uriah home. Here's David's plan. I bring him home from the front, send him home. He doesn't see his wife for a while. She's, she's fine. You let them do their married thing. Then the nine months, it was like, oh, it's his baby. He's trying to, like, cover his tracks. He wants everyone to think it's Uriah's baby and not his baby. But Uriah's a good dude. That's what Uriah does. Uriah, uh, so Uriah, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said, Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go back to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, to drink, to live with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah's like, I'm not going home to my wife till all my brothers can come home too. He's a good man. My general, my friends are out there in the wilderness. They're fighting a war. I'm not going to live as though I'm free until the battle's over. Until we're all home, no one's home. David's like, dang it. David's plan is not working. So what does David do next? Get some drunk. Get some drunk saying maybe they'll go home and see Bathsheba and it'll all go. Won't go home. Won't do it. David's like, what do I do? He won't go home. I can't cover my sin. So he decides he has to die. David writes a note to his general. And the note says, General Joab, put your rye at the front of the fight. And when there's a big, big battle, at a moment of great tension, you call your troops back and let Uriah fall in battle. Now, I always thought this was a brutal thing to do. It's a ruthless thing to do. He gives a note to Uriah and brings this to General Joab. So Uriah has in his pocket his own death penalty. Doesn't he know? He's honoring the king, carrying his death in his own pocket. I always thought Uriah was just some guy. At the end of 2 Samuel, when the book ends... There's a list of David's mighty men, his 30 most trusted warriors. And guess who's in that list? Uriah the Hittite. He's one of David's boys. And David kills him for his wife. Uriah goes back to the war. He dies in battle. 
Bathsheba mourns her husband's loss. And David gives her only a little time to mourn. He's got to marry her fast to make the math look right. Everyone think the baby is, is legit and not born out of wedlock. The sin David committed, he had to cover up, try to lie over it, cheat over it, deceive over it, ends up murdering to cover that sin. And that's the thing about sin. Sin grows up and brings death. The passage that John read in James, I'll read it again. It's a hard book to find because it's so little. It's Hebrews and then James. It's like one page long. There's Peter. Where are you? There's James. James 1. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. If we choose to live our lives in sinfulness, disobeying God's commands... No matter how good you think are at hiding it, it's going to come out. It's, it's, be sure your sin will find you out. It is going to kill you, the people you love. I have seen sin burn down churches, burn down marriages, burn down kids. If I choose to give myself to this, it's going to cost something. Sin brings death. David did things he never thought he would ever do. Try to cover up his sin. David sinned against Bathsheba. Before I move on, I want to say one thing about Bathsheba. I heard a preacher once say, said to the ladies, he said to the ladies, don't take showers in public places. And try to blame Bathsheba for David's sin. She did nothing wrong. The text at no place lays any blame at Bathsheba's feet. Not her fault. David was the creeper. She, was, she did nothing wrong. That's why I say that for all of us, okay? At the end of the chapter, verse 27, it says this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So David sinned against Bathsheba. Sinned against his own wives. Sinned against Uriah. Sinned against General Joab. Sinned against the nation. But he also sinned against the Lord. Sin displeases the Lord. Sin displeases the Lord. Imagine, if you will, a loving mama who loves her kids no matter what. And you go to your mama's house and you steal her TV. She forgives you and loves you anyway. And you go to her house, you steal her credit card, and you think you charge up on, on crap you want to buy, and she loves you anyway. And you go to the house and yell at her and she loves you anyway. You know what we would say? That's a loving mom. That's a terrible son, right? That son takes advantage, takes advantage of his mother's goodness, right? And many of us live that way with the Lord God. We're like, well, God's going to forgive me, so no harm, no foul. We think because God forgives, I can do what I want. 
No, because if we love him, we will keep his commandments. If we love him, we'll try to honor him. If we love him, Back in the day before Martin Luther blew up the church, the Catholic church. The Catholic church is to sell something called indulgences, okay? And indulgences was a piece of paper the church would sell to someone, and it gave you like a week or a month free sin. Called an indulgence. You go to the church, here's 10 pesos, whatever they paid in Rome, I don't know. 10 lira, whatever. Here's 10 lira. Here is a month of free sinning. People are like, whoa, ho, ho, ho. Imagine a piece of paper from the church saying, free sin for a month. People went crazy. People went nuts. Just going nuts. Drinking, going to the seeking whorehouses. People were going nuts. And many of us live that way to God in our lives. We think, God's so good, I can just sin. He'll forgive me, so who gives a rip? He gives a rip. When we choose to live in sin, we hurt our creator. We hurt our maker, and that matters. Me and my, my wife and my kids watch a show on TV, on Disney+, Plus, called Mrs. Marvel, about the Pakistani family. There's this one scene where it's so sweet that she's a superhero fan, wants to go to Comic-Con, and her dad buys a Hulk costume. And put, he makes his face green. He's like, I'm going to go with you. He comes in her room. I'm the Hulk. Oh. And he's trying to connect with his daughter and be cool with her. And as a dad, I'm watching. I'm like, what a great dad, dude. He's just the Hulk. He's a, he's, he's a Pakistani man. He's not big and strong. It's really funny. And she's like, dad, you're embarrassing. I don't want you anywhere near me. And you watch the dad's face just. And I, as a dad, I'm just like. Uh, my daughter sitting next to me, and she's like, I would never do that to your dad. I'm like, you're 11, just you wait. Like, it's going to happen at some point. Um, but when we, dis- when we sin, we, in the same way, we, dis- we hurt our father. We hurt our father. It displeases the Lord. Now, I've gone pretty strong about sin. Sin, it kills us. But thanks be to God that God makes a way. In in 2 Samuel 12, verse 1, it says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. David's in sin, and David thinks he beat everybody. Uriah's dead. I married Bathsheba. No one's going to ask me about the baby because I'm the king. I win everything. God knows. And God sends one of his messengers to David to call him out for his sin. And listen, God makes a way. God is not content that any one of us should perish in our sin. God God sent Nathan to David, and God sent the Christ for us. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The cost of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Even though, even though we may have done grievous things, 
there's still hope. We don't have to stay in the muck and the mire we have built for ourselves. The Lord God offers a better way. We can be with him. We can be in him. The Father sent his Son that we may have life. David is confronted with a sin. Nathan tells David, the prophet tells Nathan, the prophet tells David, you're the man, you're a sinner, dude. You done messed up. And David's like, my Lord and my God, and he is undone. His sin destroys him. That's how you know the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. When a true follower of Christ, when their sin is revealed, there is repentance, brokenness. I have sinned against the Lord. I am unworthy. Where you're really lost if you're like, man, I do nothing. That wasn't me. That shows the human heart in a real bad place. Confession, repentance, walking with Christ. Christ wants to bring us back. Listen, we can't undo what we've done. We can't unsee what we've seen. We can start a new journey. We can change the journey we're on. If you're here, and maybe your phone or your computer is a source of great temptation and sin in your life, find an accountability, get help. Find an accountability partner and get help. Don't just say, ah, I'm an addict. It just happens. No big deal. No, do not live there. You have to fight this monster. You got to. I want to encourage you. I've dealt a lot with like sexual sin, but just any sin that is tempting you, it's never too late to confess our sin to God and to turn away from that sin and say, Jesus, your way is a better way. I want to be with you more than I want to be with that. I want you, Lord, more than I want the sin of my past. Repent, confess, follow the Christ. He forgives, for he is good. With that said, now is the band going to play one more song? Is that true? If the band would come up and lead us in one last song, I'm going to go ahead and pray. And we are going to sing one last song. As we're singing this song, take some time in your heart. What's God talking to you about? What God, oh, yeah, I knocked all that crap over. I'm sorry. You got to pick it up. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer for the guitar. And we're going to have one last song to uh, okay. Let's go ahead and let's pray together. Father in heaven. I thank you so much for this time. And Lord, this word we received today was difficult. Staring at David, seeing David's great fall, seeing the pain that was caused by this action, Lord, as we look at our own lives and see the pain that our lives, our actions have created, it's tough, Lord. Give us a heart of repentance, a heart desiring to turn back to you, O oh Lord. 
renew in us a desire, a thirst for your righteousness, for your presence. And thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died that we may live. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, we ask all these things. Amen. I encourage you to stand where you are. close your eyes and just
dismissed.